If you have a Bible with you, open to page 1003. That's Hebrews chapter 6, page 1003 in the Black Pew Bibles. A quick heads up as you do. This is a difficult text. When the theologian R.C. Sproul taught on Hebrews 6, he started his sermon by saying this, quote, I want to admit from the outside, from the outset, that I find this an extremely difficult passage to deal with. There's a lot going on here. Uh, A lot of churches will just kind of jump from easy popular passage to easy popular passage. What we are committed to doing here, though, is teaching the whole counsel of God. Because every time we read over something and think, that doesn't make any sense, that sticks in the back of your mind. You put that in your back pocket as a little note. Maybe I can't trust the word of the Lord. Maybe it is actually nonsensical. So I can say that until I'm blue in the face that God's word is trustworthy and true, but we need to show it together. We need to walk through it together. And so there's a little bit of heavy lifting that's going to have to go on in this sermon. And you're going to be tremendously helped by following along in the scriptures with me. Hebrews chapter 6. The gnarly part begins in verse 4. Verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The clear meaning of this passage is that there is a kind of falling away from which it is impossible to come back. And when it says impossible, it doesn't mean unlikely. He uses that word impossible three other times in the book of Hebrews, and every time, guess what it means? Impossible. On January 10th, 49 BC, the Roman general Gaius Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon River in northeastern Italy with a legion of at least 3,500 men. They were en route to Rome. Caesar knew fully well that crossing this border with a standing army was treason under Roman law. This was the border. This was the do not cross with an army border. Once he crossed the Rubicon, one of two things would happen. Either he would capture the city and be crowned emperor, or he and his men would be executed for treason. There was no going back. And the legend has it that as he crossed the river, he exclaimed, the die is cast. He'd passed the point of no return. And Hebrews 6 warns us that somewhere along the line, if you forsake the gospel, there is a Rubicon of falling away. There's a point of no return. Now, if you're like me, this raises a lot of theological questions and some very personal questions. Many of us may wonder from time to time if we have, in fact, crossed that Rubicon. The 18th century poet William Cooper uh, wrote some of the most beautiful and edifying hymns ever sung. One of them is, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. He was a brilliant poet, really great friends with John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. But Cooper 
had a tender conscience, and he struggled with severe depression his whole life, and he died thinking that his faith was too weak and that on account of that, he was damned. Have you ever wondered if you've gone too far for God? Is that what Hebrews 6 teaches us to think? That we should doubt our salvation and wonder if maybe perhaps I've gone too far this time? Or, alternatively, should we take this as a warning and an encouraging, a heartening encouragement that God will not suffer a single sheep from his own flock to fall away? So much so that he's willing to say hard things to keep you in line. I want to show you this morning why I think it's the latter. So I want to take a closer look at this warning from Hebrews 6. And I want to ask a few questions. One, who is in view in verse 4 to 7? Who's it talking about? Two, what does falling away even mean? And how do I avoid it? Three, why is the author telling us this now? So first, who is in view here? Who's he talking about? Is this just nominal churchgoers, your creaster crowd? Or is this devout Christians too? Let's look at what we know again from verse 4. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them to repentance. Who are those in this state of no return? We know five things about them. One, they have once been enlightened. They've received revelation. Two, they have tasted the heavenly gift. This might refer to communion. This could refer to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's more than just a mental thing. There's a, there's a whole person acknowledgement of the lordship of Jesus and that he's good. Three, they've shared in the Holy Spirit and the spiritual gifts. Four, they've tasted the goodness of the word of God. There's a whole psalm about that. And five, they've tasted the powers of the age to come. So clearly these are people who have had religious experience. They've joined the church. They've exhibited signs of spiritual power and religious fervor. Every external indicator says this person is a legit Christian. But they've fallen away. So here's my question. Is this talking about those who belong to Christ? Or are these folks just posers? Has anyone ever had imitation crab before? You know what I'm talking about? I looked it up on the internet. This is what I do all week. It said, it looks just like crab, but it's like food dye. Are these just the imitation crab of Christianity? Do they never really know Christ in the first place? Here's why this matters. If you read Philippians 1.6, Paul's letter to the Philippians, you hear this. God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's a biblical promise. But then you read Hebrews 6.4 and you hear, don't fall away because if you do, you can never be restored to repentance. It's impossible So which is it? Can I trust the promise or not? 
If this passage is about real Christians who belong to Christ but fall away, then we would have to say, at best, that God who began a good work in you might bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus if you're good. It's one or the other, right? Or is there another way? We have every reason to believe. We need to read scripture in its context. Whenever we come across something difficult, we need to read it in its context and weigh it against the rest of the testimony of the Bible. Philippians 1.6 is a rock-solid promise given to some shaky believers who are under persecution. Listen, God has got you. There is not a sheep in his flock that he will let go. Hebrews 6.4 is a hypothetical situation. Note that. He doesn't say, uh, it is impossible, like case in point, you know, these guys over here, who they fell away from your church, they're gone. They can't possibly be restored to repentance. No, this is a hypothetical that's set here in order to scare them, frankly, to make them fear unbelief, as we said a few weeks ago. The point is that every last one of us needs to listen to this warning and think, whew, that could be me. There but for the grace of God go I. I'm going to be honest with you. Reading through the book of Hebrews for me so far in this sermon series has not been comfortable. But it's actually been really encouraging. I've been personally challenged to press in to Christ. I've been kind of called out a little bit on my own lackadaisical spirituality. God's calling me in. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Sometimes it's good to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Second question, though, what does falling away even mean? And how do I avoid it? I don't know about you. I've had many, many moments of weakness in my faith. The root word that we translate fall away is actually the same word that we get the English word apostasy. So we could say, uh, do not apostatize. And the rest of the book of Hebrews gives us some context about what this means. Chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, the gospel, lest we drift away from it. Different word, same idea. 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away, same word, from the living God. Verse 13, but exhort one another. That means call one another out, call one another up every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So what is apostasy? What is falling away? It has to do with drifting from the gospel that you heard. It has to do with abandoning your original confidence in Christ. And it has to do with being hardened in your heart. It appears that there's more in view than just having weak faith or a season of doubt. For example, Peter. Everybody loves Peter. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. 
But within a matter of hours, he denied even being associated with Jesus three times. And how did Jesus respond? Did he conclude that it is impossible for Peter to be restored to repentance? No. He did what all of you should fear. He ordained him. Let this be a lesson to all of you. Then after that, Peter continued to deny the gospel, even after Jesus restored him. Paul recounts in Galatians 2 how Peter, quote, drew back and refused to eat with Gentile Christians because he wanted to impress these Jewish Christians who were coming into town. He wanted to look pious, and so he didn't eat with the dirty Gentiles. And this is a theologically significant withdrawal because it's essentially a denial that the radical grace of Christ is even for the outsiders. So if Hebrews 6 taught that it's impossible to restore anyone who denies Jesus Christ in any capacity, we would have no choice but to conclude that the Apostle Peter could not have repented and ended up in hell. You want to find that line of logic with me? It's not there. Something else is clearly in view. Falling away is clearly something else. Apostasy is something other than just weak faith. Look at verse 7 with me. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This is very similar to what Jesus said in our gospel reading from John 15 this morning. Christians are like plants. We drink in the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and because of the way that he made us, when, we, when he gives us his grace, we bear fruit in time. We do not become perfect in this life, but we do grow in love, in joy, and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's called sanctification. Those who he, he has justified, he sanctifies and ultimately glorifies. We just studied that in the men's group last night. That's a biblical promise. You will bear fruit when you abide in him. If, instead, our hearts become hard, our souls become hateful and turbulent and demanding and selfish and angry and faithless and violent and self-centered, the author of Hebrews is saying, there's a Rubicon in that path. There's a point from which there is no return. So, fear the hardening of your heart. Fear that unbelief. So, we've established that everyone is to take this warning seriously. You do, I do. Even as we trust in God's preserving grace. We hold both of those things. And we've also established that falling away, or apostasy, is something more than just doubting or struggling or screwing up. It's a hardening. So, third question. Why Hebrews 6, 4-7? Why is this necessary? Why is he telling us this? I want to make a note about the original audience from the end of chapter 5. Hebrews 5, the passage right before the one we just read, gives us the impression that this group of Christians had not fallen off of the cliff, but they were sort of like playing near the edge. 
right in the middle of this profound discussion about how Christ is our high priest all throughout chapter 5, and then continued in chapter 7, there's this big, profound, theological discussion. But there's an interruption right in the middle of it. Our passage is an interruption. He stops because he he suspects they are not getting it. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 11. He stops and says, About this, in other words, about how Christ is our high priest, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull, also translated sluggish or stupid, of hearing. He says that they ought to be teachers by now. You've been at this for a while, but you still only have a basic rudimentary grasp of the gospel. So, he says, therefore, chapter 6, verse 1, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, wait a minute. Does that strike anyone else as weird? This has always confused me. These people are flirting with abandoning the gospel. So why is he saying, all right, ab- all right, folks who are about to abandon the gospel, let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Is he really telling them to move on from the gospel of Christ? I don't believe that's what's going on here. And here's why. This word, the elementary doctrine of Christ, is literally translated the beginning, or the rudiments, or the basics. And six doctrines are listed in it. One, repentance from dead works. And in this context, that does not mean repenting of works righteousness. It means repenting of all the immorality that we all commit every day. Basically, just repentance. Two, faith toward God. Notice, it doesn't say Jesus, faith toward God. Three, instruction about washings. The word here is not referring to baptism. It's probably referring to Jewish ceremonial cleansing. Four, the laying on of hands, which could mean either putting your hand on an animal for a substitutionary sacrifice, or the anointing of a priest or a king or the sick person. Five, the resurrection of the dead. Six, eternal judgment. These are elementary doctrines, basics. And apparently, these Hebrew Christians already agree. They already have laid the foundation of this, that you need to repent, you need to have faith in God, you need to be washed clean from sin. There needs to be no substitution, there needs to be substitutionary sacrifice and fellowship. There needs to be the dead will be raised and God will judge the world. So you might say, that's Christianity. That's the basic foundations of the whole Christian truth, right? They're all good good with that. Here's the problem. Those are also Pharisaic Jewish doctrines. What's missing from this picture? Repentance, faith, washing, substitutionary sacrifice dead raised, judgment of the world. What's missing? Christ! Where's Christ? 
They're down with, with, they're down with faith in God and repentance and all this, but they've lapsed back into the Judaism that they grew up in. They're missing out on Christ. They have a Christless Christianity. And that's the whole burden of the book of Hebrews, is to show that Christ is the fulfillment of everything. He isn't saying you need something more advanced than Christ. Far from it. He's saying move on into Christ, the crucified man. All of your hopes and dreams are met in the body of this crucified man who was given for you. Accept him. Cling to him. Are you falling back? You need Christ. Are you weak and struggling? You need the blood-bought mercy of Christ. Are you proud? You need to look on a crucified body that was broken for you. There is no advanced Christianity that moves beyond Christ. Mature Christianity is fellowship with Christ. The more we go on, the more we realize that we just need Christ. If you trace through Paul's letters, you notice that early on in his ministry, he likes to boast and say, like, I was a Pharisee among Pharisees, kind of an upstanding guy. But by the end, he says things like this. This is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. Do you see? Christian maturity is being on your knees and recognizing that you need a savior, but that you have a savior. So what's the point of this passage? Why this disturbing word? Hebrews 6, does it want us to question our salvation? Are we supposed to make little of God's sovereign, preserving grace? Not at all. The pastor John Piper is not my man on every point, but he gets this right. He says this. He says, one of the ways that God causes us to persevere in faith and be saved is by warning us that we could make a shipwreck of our faith and be lost. It's like I said this a few weeks ago. My kids are playing in the stream above the waterfall at Fall Run Park. There's a 30-foot drop, but I won't let them go anywhere near that edge. If they start heading that way, there's no way they're going to get there. You know why? I'm going to tackle them. You better believe it. But part of the way I keep them safe is by giving them a stern word. I don't want to see you within 20 yards of that edge. Look out, because if you go that way, you're going to fall. And there's no coming back from that. I know that they're not going that way. You want to know why? Because I'm faster than they are. Friends, let's take this warning seriously. Let's fear unbelief. Warnings like Hebrews 6 are part of the means that God uses to save and preserve your soul. This is a token that he cares about you. Don't let your heart become hardened against the deceitfulness of sin. And most of all, look to Christ who endured the cross for you. Apart from him, there is no safety. But in him, you are perfectly secure. Amen.